welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and our guest today is Alex Navarro. Alex is a nationally renowned personal trainer, fitness competitor, and the owner of Her Body Solutions, and the co-author of Transforming Recipes Cookbook Series. She has helped thousands of clients reach their fitness goals through the combination of workout programming, nutritional planning, and food science education. Alex has competed in over 25 fitness and bikini shows, placing top five at both the national and international level, earning the title of Miss Natural Fitness Olympia in 2011, and then her WBFF Pro Card in the summer of 2012. Today, we welcome Alex to the show to discuss the topic of breast implants and the little discussed effects they can have on the body, psyche, and health as a whole. Alex, welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thank you guys for having me. It has been uh, a hot minute since uh, we chatted, Alex, but we we met, what was it, maybe five, six years ago uh, with uh, Body.io? Yes, I think it's been that long. It's crazy because that feels like yesterday. Agreed. Pretty much right around the time I think I met you, Freya. Um, yes, I definitely remember Alex's name first being mentioned in the context of a trip to San Fran. And oh, yeah. I believe donuts were also part of the equation. I, I, yeah, yes. I recall that. Yeah, those, those donuts were, were pretty epic. That was, that was a great few days. <laughs> well, you're welcome back to visit anytime. Yeah, well, we do love California. It's kind of our jam, although we tend to go more Southern California, but you also have to remember that it is colder in the Bay Area versus Southern California, and we're coming from Canada to escape the cold, so we just want to go wherever it's as hot as possible. Yeah, that's uh, very smart. San Diego is not fun. <laughs> oh, man, it's, it, is our, it is our spot. <laughs> So, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we touched base a little bit via email, and we've, we've had a few clients over the past couple of years, maybe two to three years, who have had breast implants and have had a, a litany of issues that were completely unexpected. So we, we know that you have implants, and we wanted to bring you on the show today to discuss them in a little bit more detail, to kind of talk about your story a little bit, and we know you've worked with a lot of figure competitors, so I'm sure you have a lot of experience with uh, this topic. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about your story? Absolutely. Um, it's it's definitely, there's a lot to it, so I'll try not to meander too much in telling it, but uh, basically it's, I never had boobs growing up, probably because I was always athletic. You know, I, I did gymnastics for most of my like younger years, into my teens. It was Every, all the women in my family, I'm surrounded by women in my family, had fairly large breasts. And as a teenager, you know, it's just something that I kept waiting for them to come and they just never did. <laughs> so that it, even in my teen years, I sort of had it in the back of my mind. And this was, this was right around when breast implants started to become a thing where I was like, I might do that someday. But again, didn't think much of it. And it really wasn't until I started competing that that thought, that idea was just something that came to my came to mind more. I was seeing it more and more um, with other competitors on stage. And not that I felt like it would improve my chances of doing well, um, because I had been very successful prior to getting them. So I knew that that wouldn't make or break, you know, my placings, I definitely didn't get them for that reason. But there always was that desire to just, you know, be able to like put on a bikini top and <laughs> 
feel like there was something there. Um, <laughs> it's not like I, again, I, I didn't have small boobs. I just literally didn't have boobs at all. Mm-hmm. So again, just being a woman and wanting to be able to wear certain shirts and feel a little bit more confident in that area. It's, it's something that I, I thought a lot about and I did a lot of research on my own. And, and this was my, my very first surgery was in 2011. So it's been a very long time. And I did as much research as I could, and that was available at the time. Um, but even in doing that, there wasn't a lot of information about the problems that could arise at all. Um, and it's definitely not something that was mentioned in, in the any of the many consultations that I did, because I did lots of consultations with a variety of doctors, just to get an idea of, you know, what were they talking about? What were their thoughts on this process? Um, I knew that I wanted to be able to continue to you know, do my fitness, be athletic. I had concerns about what if I'm flipping around and I land funny, am I going to like pop it? Is there, you know, are there things I need to, you know, I literally had these visions in my head of like them exploding. Um, <laughs> would that be terrible? Like, yeah, no, we've, we've had a couple strength athletes express the same issue. Cause you know, with like a clean and jerk, they're like, but what happens if like it lands a little low and, and um, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a shared concern. What if I go on airplanes? I've heard they explode. <laughs> I mean, you're just going to think of like worst case scenarios. So these were, I sort of had my list of questions that I asked in all of these consultations that I went to. And it was first, I would say it was interesting to hear what these different doctors were saying, because some had very nonchalant attitudes like, oh yeah, we just opened you up. We put them in. That's that. Like end of story. And then other doctors would be like, well, if you're going to you know, work out, you should wait this amount of time and then do this. And they just had a more opinion on it, whether that was through their own experience or you know, their own education. It's kind of hard to say where they were coming from in, in the advice that I was given. Right. Um, but ultimately, I, again, there wasn't any, anything to worry about. I didn't go into the procedure thinking like, oh, I have to watch out for this. Like this could happen. I didn't think of that at all. My concern was literally like, how fast can I recover? And can I get back in the gym? And that was it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people that that we know and that we've worked with, and again, we don't have a massive population of them, but the ones that we have spoken to mostly were concerned with the recovery process um, from a mechanical standpoint, like from, okay, you can't stretch the skin or you can't load this way yet. So it was a very localized sort of approach in terms of the recovery and pain management sort of thing. But none of them seem to be informed about the larger scale impact, like what happens 10 years from now, or Mm -hmm. what if my body starts to reject it? Or what does that mean for my shoulder based on whether they put it under the pack or over the pack? What does that mean for my function? So it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because we've heard heard that there is information or there was information given about like oh you should go this size and then your recovery process for the next few weeks is this way but like nothing about the really the longer term or or including the entire system so since you've had yours would there be questions if you were to go back I know we can never go back it's a terrible example but (laughs) would there be questions knowing what you know now that you wish you would have asked at the time. Yes, absolutely. It would have been around, you know, 
what are things that I can watch out for early on in the recovery process that might be signs that X, Y, or Z could happen. So mm-hmm. what had happened, and I've talked about this openly on her body um, years ago about sort of the issues that I had. And for me, what had happened was I developed what was what's called capsular contraction. So basically it's scar tissue that starts to grow around the implant in an attempt to, again, this, they don't know exactly why this happens, but in an attempt to either push it out of the body or protect the body from it, from the right. implant itself, because it is a foreign object. They don't, there still isn't a lot of information around why it happens, you know, who it could happen to, if, if there are like risk factors that you could pay attention to ahead of time, that might be signs that this might be a potential for somebody. Um, but it's very common for it to happen only on one side. Again, they don't know why that would happen. Um, and the rate at which it can develop and continue to develop over time is also something that they don't know a lot about still, which baffles me. I'm like, this happens all the time. It's like mm-hmm. one in four, I think, that this happens to. Oh, wow. Severe, yeah. But the severity of it can change. It could be very subtle where it's to the touch, it just feels a little firmer. Uh-huh. But other than that, it's not a problem. Whereas in my case, they basically have a scale from like one to four. One is, oh, it's it's a little bit firm, but again, you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at it or feeling it. And there's probably no other discomfort beyond that. I was like a high four. Wow. And so it was hard and probably quite uncomfortable. Quite uncomfortable, yes. And my when I when it first started developing, I could tell that something was wrong. I could feel it. It was painful. You know, it started to look not the way that I would want it to. And my doctor at the time said, well, we just have to take it out. We have to clean out the pocket, basically, because that's what they do. They create a pocket. Um, and I did go under the muscle. Okay. And they create a pocket um, that they place the implant in. And then the pocket will eventually heal around it, except in my case, scar tissue started to develop around the pocket, which then squeezes the implant. And that's what makes it firm. Got it. And and what was the what was the timeline on this with with like after you'd gotten the procedure done? Right around the six month mark is when I started to feel it. I just started to feel strange sensations, um, almost like tightening sensations, right. um, like like pressure on my chest when I would lay down. Um, again, I know my body so well that anything that feels odd mm-hmm. or not normal, I'm like, what is that? What's going on? <laughs> yep. um, so when I first went in and I'm like, hey, this, you know, this is what's what I'm feeling. This is what's happening. He said, oh, this is probably what you're developing. You can take this medication, which is basically a, it's actually meant for asthma patients. And it's like the number one prescribed thing to prevent this from happening. And if somebody has the potential of developing it, they will actually give it to you like um, right after surgery and not wait, which is what I did the second time, which I'll get into. Even though they probably didn't even mention that this was something that could happen in the initial consult. Correct. Exactly. Correct. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so we wait until it starts to happen to do this. And then the odds of it working still are unsure. Unsure. And then of course you have complicate, well, maybe not complications, sorry. You have side effects from that medication. Yes. Yes. So 
of course I did what I was told because I assume that they know what they're talking about. So I yeah. took the medication. Um, I started to do aggressive massage and foam rolling. I mean, if anybody's foam rolled your IT band, you know how uncomfortable that is. Try doing that to your boob. Ugh. Where there's scar tissue? Where there's scar tissue. Sounds pleasant. I don't have boobs and that sounds awful. It's very awkward. Let me tell you. And, and it looks weird. You know, you're like, <laughs> obviously you're going you're gonna to do this at home. You're not going to do this at the gym. Uh, <laughs> people would look at you very strangely. Um, so I did, you know, I did, I'm great at doing homework. I follow instructions really well. You tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. So I did all of these things and, you know, you guys had asked um, sort of in the, in the outline of questions to ask what that does to your psyche. And I really got down about it. I, I was feeling frustrated with my body, frustrated with not knowing how to fix it, um, not having the tools to be able to just do anything about it. I'm like, again, I'm following my instructions, but nothing's happening. I feel like it's getting worse. I did have a competition coming up that I was preparing for. So I'm still trying to work out while hoping to prevent this from getting worse. You know, I got it to look good and now it's the opposite is happening. And again, just being in discomfort a lot of the time and having just that sense of not being able to control what's happening to your body, um, it did get really down about it. So I went through a few months of really struggling, not, not to mention the financial investment that I had made. Yeah. And I was young at the time. I, you know, I like took out a loan to get this done. (laughs) It's not like I just had the extra, you know, several grand laying around to, uh, spend on this. It was, it was an investment. It was something that I planned for and I thought a lot about. So all of that did definitely get me down. And it did help to have conversations with other women who had experienced it. And I did know of two at the time, but again, they had never mentioned that to me prior to me mentioning it to them. Being a problem. Yeah. So exactly. did you ultimately have to get another surgery to correct for that? I did. So okay. almost exactly a year later, I went in for a, a cleanup surgery, basically. So what they do is they go in, they take out the implant, they clean out, they're supposed to clean out the entire pocket. And I ultimately don't believe that that's what happened. I, again, I can't prove that. I can't go back to the doctor and say, I don't think you did this. He claims that he did. But based off of every other doctor that I've seen after this last repeat, um, they think that that's that he did it, oh. but again, they couldn't prove that only because after the surgery, it came back faster and more aggressive than the first time. Wow. So the body's just going even harder at protecting the exact same thing. But if, if he didn't clean it out fully, it already had a foundation to do so then. Exactly. Again, from what I know about, you know, breast implants and these surgeries, it's almost like a racket in a way where the surgeons can just kind of control things and be like, well, do I want her back here in six months, a year, you know, two mm-hmm. years, I can do a good job, I can do a bad job, just how much money do I want to make off this person? Pretty much. Yep. And that's that very much the sense that I got a month down the road after that repeat surgery and going in and, and seeing him almost every week saying this isn't working this and I had started taking the medication that he prescribed before the surgery. Yeah, to prevent it to prevent it. I mean, I was literally doing everything that I could. And you know, week after week, I'm going in and I'm like, nothing is helping. And he's literally like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, the risk management piece was uh, completely missing from it. And so you still have yours today. And you originally got them in in 2011. Um, 2012 was the 
the, re- the repeat surgery. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you had more success or pain relief with them since then? Um, I have. So after that last visit with the doctor, um, basically where he threw his hands up and gave me zero information whatsoever, um, I left crying and was like, okay, I'm never going to see you again, obviously. Why would Mm -hmm. I ever come back? And which is also interesting because I have five other colleagues who have all seen the same surgeon and and had zero complications. Oh, interesting. Like no problems whatsoever which is interesting. So again, it's, it's very individualized. You don't know how your body is going to respond to something. I, it, uh, it is a very traumatic experience when you think of like what the body is actually going through and mm-hmm. knowing what I know now about, about your body holding trauma and how it deals with things. Um, it very much could have been related. Yeah. So um, I did seek out other forms of easing the pain, easing the discomfort. Um, I did a lot of acupuncture which helped significantly with the inflammation that was happening, especially early on in the healing process. Um, It also helped with the pain a lot. And other symptoms that I did experience because of that, and and you kind of mentioned it earlier with, I did get it under the muscle. So they basically like lift up your pec muscle, put it under and then put the pec back. (laughs) So you can imagine the trauma that goes on in the muscles, not only in the pecs, but then in your back. So Working on like just activation of my back, getting my pecs to open up in a very, you know, I didn't want to jump into it too fast and have it tense up even more. So it did take a lot of like easing into it, um, opening up the pec, doing light stretches. I did a lot of band work for my upper body and I really had to go back into all of my upper body training, specifically like handstand work. I just had to take my time with it, which was also mentally challenging. Like, yeah. I can physically do this, but I shouldn't because I don't know what's going to happen or how my body's going to respond if I just jump right back in. Yeah. So I did have to give myself a little bit more time and grace and space to just really see day to day how I was responding to things. So it took me about, I would say, nine, 10 months after that repeat surgery to start to just feel better I mean the the breast itself is still very firm it's Mm -hmm. definitely it's up higher than it should but in terms of like the comfort level it's significantly better it it improved significantly more um I did have some experiences um when I after when I had my son through breastfeeding which we can talk about or not we can definitely talk about that um I I do want to say though your comment about taking your time especially with the the impact on the back and the shoulders. That is one common thing that I've seen in the select number of people I've worked with, with implants is the impact on the shoulders mm-hmm. and a ton of neck pain and a paucity of activation throughout the back. So a lot of very small women with larger implants, it's, whether it's under or over, I'm not sure if the effect is the same because I think I've only worked with people where it's under. And they've all had almost like a dissociation of where their shoulders are in space. Mm-hmm. And they lost range of motion significantly with the surgery. And as a consequence, had much greater neck tension and less tone throughout their upper back. So uh, that was one of the biggest reasons I was working with them was for the injury side of things. Right. But it is interesting that you mentioned that just that it needed that much more time to adapt. It's like, 
very disrupted tissue and also brand new tissue tissue sorry but dane has a question for you i was going to see if you could speak to the difference between the getting the implants under or over the pec um, i'm sure you know people who have done both and do you see people have more success and by more success i mean you know less pain less structural issues um, with one type of procedure or the other um, I actually haven't seen a difference. It seems to be very consistent across the board. Um, but also in saying that the two women that I personally know who have them over the muscle are not athletic women. So I can't compare, you know, physically what they can or can do, can't do can do or if that has impacted, again, what they can or cannot do because they, they don't work out. Yeah, no, definitely makes sense. <laughs> totally different demand on the structures. A little bit different, yep. They're like, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah. You're not doing handstands. But I could just imagine that, yes, anytime you're going to be moving muscles around or, or putting something on top of them, there is trauma that's created there. Mm-hmm. And your body is, our bodies are really smart. They There's a reason it does everything, I feel like. So if it's if it's trying to, you know, the pecs are super tight. Of course, it's going to, you're going to feel pain and tension in other places mm-hmm. because it's trying to protect it. It's like, why would you do that? We, everybody needs to jump in and help with this situation. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. When people get frustrated with their bodies, I always just remind them like your body's actually doing absolutely everything within its power to keep you safe. <laughs> it may not feel like that, especially in cases of chronic pain, but like it is responding to um, your environment, whatever stimulus you have outside your body and inside your body. And then as you mentioned before, like that can create a pattern of, uh, of trauma and that's held in our, held in our tissues very firmly as much as some people think that's just like a woo woo concept. I'm sure you can attest to the fact that it is not. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. I did um, a lot of skin stemming. So a lot of just touching of the skin around the areas that were greater because there are certain pinpoint spots around the implant that are more tender and more sensitive than Mm -hmm. others. Um, So I will and I continue to do um, just some skin stemming of the area, very light, gentle massage. I do in retrospect think that the aggressive foam rolling that I did was actually counterproductive. Yeah. I think it was too much too soon. If I had gone in with a gentler uh, approach, more of a loving, like, Hey, let's everything like calm down rather than like, let's break this up. I feel like my body actually responded in a more negative way when I think about it. But again, I didn't have the information of the tools back then to know. Sure. And I I think a lot of us, just even in any tissue, used to kind of behave, we kind of went along the lines of smashing tissues. I hate using that term. Um, But that did become really popular right around that time when everyone thought, oh, I'm just going to like beat my muscles into submission. So whether we're talking about an implant or um, trigger points, yeah, I think a lot of people have come to the realization at some point in their life that actually, if you speak to your body more softly, even in the tools that we use, uh, Dane and I both used to do that. And I wonder why I was like, Oh, I was just doing soft tissue. And now I have like three new subluxed things. Right. How'd that happen? It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, right. Maybe I should be softer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with, with soft tissue work, it's again, that smashing bit became really popular, but I mean, think about it. It's you're trying to get an area of your body to relax. But if you're smashing it, it's going to have more of a a rebound effect and get tighter. 
Okay. So whether it's with implants or just, you know, rolling out your quads mm-hmm. to take, you know, more of a softer rhythmic approach, we find that you get better results just in general. And on, on that topic, do you go in on a regular basis? Like, a, is there a, kind of like a maintenance schedule, even if there is no pain, like how much, how much like follow-up is there even years after the procedure? Zero. And, and even if there is, so I should mention that, so I, I competed this past April for the first time in a, in a very, very long time. And it was also the first time that I had actually got really back into lifting. I mean, obviously I've lifted, you know, since 2012. But in such a, you know, strategic specific way that I did notice in prep for this last show that I had a little bubble pop out on the side on the implant side that is problematic. So when I, and I have seen two people since then, cause I did have a concern of like, what does this mean? There was a literally a little bubble that popped out that was very visible. And I was concerned that, okay, now I'm getting on stage in front of, you know, thousands of people. Are you going to see this? Is this something I need to worry about? Is it a problem? And from my understanding after doing my own research and then seeing two, two, two new doctors since then um, about what, you know, should I be worried? Is it a problem? Basically, the we might have to find a picture of this too because it's really interesting. But you're, you know, you have the capsule, the scar tissue, basically pocket that's created around the implant, and once the implant is squeezed to a point, I mean, just imagine like a bean bag, and then you put something around it really tight. It's going to find a way to release pressure. Yeah. So a, a part of the pocket had split open. And now the implant is pushing through that hole. Ah, so is that yeah. something that you're going to have to get another surgery for? Keep an eye on. He said, again, it's not a problem. Um, it's only a problem if there is discomfort. Yeah. And if it's painful. And it's not. I don't really feel any sensation there, which I take as a, a good sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's just more of a visual thing at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the pocket or the hole, I should say, has gotten a little bit bigger. So it's less of an obvious like... <laughs> you know, protruding bubble now, which is a little bit better. Um, But again, after seeing a few and wondering, what should I do at this point? Like, should I just take them out and not be that and then just never deal with them again? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sort of what is the process? And I have seen, again, two separate doctors um, who are known for this. So I did take a lot of time and research to find doctors who specialized in fixing this whether it, it was just a full removal and then cleaning out of the whole pocket um, or actually putting new ones in. So I do plan on having another baby um, in the not so distant future. So the question at this point is, do I wait until that's done? Do I try to do it now and hope for a smooth recovery? That's yeah. sort of where the question lies. And at this point, I'm, I'm undecided. So, Well, so how old's your son now? He's two. He just turned two a few Just years. turned two. So can you tell us about some of the changes you experienced both during pregnancy and while he was little and born? Yeah, absolutely. So boobs in general, or breasts in general, when you get pregnant are obviously going to, you're going to get more sensations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on, whether you have implants or not. So I anticipated there being changes there, which there obviously were. Um, there was a little bit of extra discomfort on the problematic side in the first trimester 
again, okay. just as those hormones were changing, everything was just more, you're, everything's more sensitive. So I was just a little bit more heightened to those sensations. And I could only describe them as like almost like electric zings, like very nervy sensation. It was not painful by any means, but it was just sensations. That's yeah. the best way I can describe it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> unpleasant, um, nonetheless. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Unpleasant, nonetheless. Other than that, it it wasn't a, really a problem. And it did dissipate going into the second trimester and really wasn't an issue again until I started breastfeeding which I was very concerned about. And this was a legitimate concern of mine even before getting them and something that I did inquire about in all of the consults that I did. I said, I know I want to breastfeed. Can I still do that? Um, and everybody said yes. And all the research that I had, you know, had done on my own said that that's possible. And it was. So luckily, I did not have any issues there. Um, I would say the only interesting thing that happened is on the side that is problematic is because the scar tissue was so strong all the way around the implant is that milk would only come in certain parts of that breast. So oh, wow. I know it was very strange. So the yeah. left breast looked totally normal and the right one looked very strange, like, Oh, like milk only in one area. But again, like was able to breastfeed just fine. There actually wasn't a lot of discomfort during that time, luckily, it just looked strange. That's excellent, though, that you were able to and without without pain. I mean, we know women who don't have implants who have a lot of difficulty with breastfeeding or a lot of pain with it. Uh, I suppose this could be one and the same. So that is excellent. But it's also really interesting because the scar tissue clearly caused significant restriction. Yes, I know. I'd be curious to, I mean, it's hard to, to go back and wonder, but you know, how different would that have been? Would have my milk supply yeah. been greater, less? Would it, you know, what mm. would have changed if A, they weren't there or B, I didn't have any issues with them. So again, luckily things worked out the way I want. I hope that they would. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you discussed, I'm assuming based on the couple people that you just mentioned that you've, you have discussed full removal, were they forthcoming about how long that sort of recovery is? Because I've had a couple clients remove theirs, uh, both very different recoveries, partially because their level of athleticism and health was also quite different going into the surgery. So what does that look like? And have you had clients that have had theirs removed? I haven't had any clients have them removed. I have had two clients who've done repeats and had great experiences and no problems, but one of them did seek out a specialist out of Dallas, uh, Texas, who literally specializes just in preventing and fixing capsular contractions. So he has a program that they put clients through as long as they are only in the early stages of it developing, where they use both a combination of ultra, what is it? It's almost like an ultrasound machine ultrasonic waves that they do around the tissue and then follow up with manual massage to literally break it apart. Right. Uh, to guide the tissue, how to lay down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I've had one client do that with great results. And I actually saw that doctor early, I would say 2014. I went and saw that doctor because I was living in Texas at the time. 
but he said I was too far along for them to do anything about that. Unfortunately. Uh, shoot. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was like, darn it. I was so hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's nice to know that those doctors exist. Agreed. And it's like, okay, there are three of them in the country that I've been able to find. How how do other doctors not know about this? Is it because they don't want to tell you that this A, this is a problem? B, that they then they have to admit that they can't do that themselves? Like, those are yeah. sort of the things that would go through my head when after I found them and had those conversations. I'm like, why don't more people know about you guys? Why are there not more of you that can do this? Yeah. Yeah. It just goes to show that not many people specialize in the management and care for them. More people specialize in just the actual surgery of putting them in, but nothing thereafter. Yeah. And I think we have to remember that it's still a pretty young field as well, right? It really is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But one thing, more specifically, when I first had inquired about getting them, and I was concerned about, you know, doing the flipping and all of that, they did one doctor that I saw, took one of the implants, you know, because they have implants just kind of sitting on their desk, (laughs) of different (laughs) sizes, he takes an implant, and he starts smashing it on the table, he puts it on the ground, he stomps on it, he throws it against the wall, he's like, if you were in a car accident, and your lungs would be punctured from your ribs before this implant would ever break which is <laughs> cool and kind of scary at the same time. <laughs> I was going to say, it's really cool, but it's also like, oh, that's in your body. You have that's something less destructible than your own tissues in your body. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. I'd also be like, I'm not sure I want this man operating on me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anger issues, sir? <laughs> it's not a stress ball. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when I did inquire about getting them taken out, you know, all they can tell you about recovery is basically everybody's body's different and mm-hmm. you know yourself well enough to be able to gauge how the recovery is going, what your body might be needing. Um, this last one that I saw, and it's interesting to the differing opinions of doctors because some say we'll do it this way and some say we'll do it this way. And these are the reasons why this is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them is if you are have been more prone to developing the scar tissue like that, then there are other things, either stronger antibiotics, um, different entry points for surgery, and then also drainage options, which can help reduce, like significantly reduce your chances of infection. And that's part of why the scar tissue develops is that there's something that's that's happening, whether it's bacteria that's in there or your body's response to the stress of the, pro- of the procedure itself, that it'll start to develop that. So they just go through as many different steps and layers of prevention as possible. Um, And again, these weren't things that were mentioned to me seven years ago. Of course. And based on that, had you been given that information, were there any things in your health history that would have made you sort of clue in to how you would recover afterwards based on, I don't know, how your scars form or anything like that? Nope. Nothing. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been very helpful, but at least having been told what to look for early on could have been of use in finding the right physician to, or sorry, surgeon to help correct for things. Yeah. I also feel like, and this is something that I actually, I don't want to say experimented with, but um, I've had several clients go through procedures themselves and I was, you know, openly shared my experiences and things for them to pay attention to when doing this. And that it was a hundred percent their decision, but knowing what the risks were and the complications that could happen, all of them are athletic. So Mm -hmm 
like and what to pay attention to in their body and taking their recovery slow. But I also, they were, these three women were open to experimenting on the nutritional side of things to help prevent inflammation in those first few weeks, other supplementations that they could take, again, just as like precautionary things. And again, I, it's hard to compare them to if we hadn't done those things, but none of them have had issues. They all had great smooth recoveries. So regardless of if I decide to just take them out or redo them, um, those are all things that I would keep in mind going into that next. That's excellent. For sure. We, uh, we work with clients on pre and post-op nutrition, just to also with the same principle of trying to reduce inflammation prior to going under and then to keep inflammation down. And we use that as a protocol to just help their body have every possible reserve they could have. So mm-hmm. even though you can't compare them, we can definitely agree with you that uh, you certainly changed their outcome. But on the topic of nutrition, have you noticed any um, clients or friends who've had digestive changes since they got their implants? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I did. I did have some skin issues. I broke out really bad on my chest um, both times oh. afterwards for about six weeks afterwards, and they said it could have been a combination of the anesthesia, sort of like my body's rejection to it, which I did have a sensitivity to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they they put stuff on top of the skin. They do a topical, like local anesthesia, and then the regular anesthesia, um, but also just the stress of it is very common. So. Yeah. I did have some skin issues immediately following, but those resolved within a few weeks. Oh, that's good. So we, we do know a couple of people who have had ongoing digestive issues that started to build roughly mm-hmm. like six months onwards after their implants. But I do anticipate that some of this can just be related to the physical stress of yeah. the implants not being the right fit for their body or not having been managed well post-op. Causing a bit of collateral damage there. Yes, I could see that. Yeah, and it's it's important not to forget that the majority of our immune cells are within the gut lining, and so mm-hmm. if you invade, you know, introduce a foreign invader to the body, then you know if something's not going right, you get an immune response, and that can cause some, you know digestive issues. Again, probably temporary, but again, when you get eczema or something like that, I mean, that can just be a direct response to the body saying just having an immune response to something that's there that wasn't there before. Absolutely. Great. With the clients that you've worked with, what do you think are some of the main concerns across all parties that women face when they get implants? Like the psychological impact of it outside of the recovery piece? Well, I think you just, you're going to go into it with such like high expectations of how you're going to look and feel afterwards. Um, I mean, most of these women are getting it because at least like the last three that I've sort of helped through that process. Um, you know, they're all moms, they all have multiple children. So they sort of were, let's say they weren't happy with how they looked, but you know, they wanted to do something for themselves at that point. They wanted to feel a little bit more confident feel like they, you know, they had worked so hard to get their, you know, quote unquote, get their body back, um, which I hate saying that, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> feel like they're in control of their bodies and how they look and what they're able to do with them, that getting the implants at that point just helped sort of like icing on the cake for them. Right. So having high expectations of like, oh, it's super easy. You just go in and your recovery is really fast and then they look great. Yeah. You know, and that's <laughs> it. 
<laughs> and I and I hope that you know the majority that that's what happens. But you obviously don't want to go into it with like worst case scenario. But I think having the tools and the knowledge that like, hey, these are possibilities and these are things that you should watch out for are super important. And that's that's basically what I I tried to provide for them was like this was my experience. These were things that I wish that I knew before. This is how we could approach it this time to hopefully prevent things as much as possible and then continue to be aware of potential risks that could show up a year down the line. And that's Mm -hmm. what's hard to know too. Can you summarize some of, you know, if somebody came up to you today and was like, Hey, I'm really thinking about getting implants. You know, is there anything I should be aware of any questions I should ask my surgeon specifically in summary, is there, are there any really like major things that you would advise to anybody looking to get the procedure done? Um, yes, actually. So entry points um, can make a difference. Again, everybody's body's difference in how they, how they respond. But there is a lot of research that show entry points around the nipple can has greater risk for infection. So your risk of you know, get bacteria getting in there of any kind um, can increase your chances of there either being an infection or developing the scar tissue. I didn't have the drainage bags, which are literally like little tubes that go into the pockets and help drain out fluid and helps reduce inflammation. In retrospect, I wish I had done that. So Mm -hmm. knowing what your options are, ask the doctor, like, is this something that you do? If if it's not, why? If it is, yes. When do you recommend it? Is it just like part of the process that everybody does? Or or do you only save that for, you know, certain situations? Um, But knowing that I found to be invaluable. It's definitely something that I would probably do if, if and when I were to do it again. But yeah, I'd say those two for the most part. Yeah, those are already super helpful. I mean, those are not things that we would be aware of, but again, we refer out for more questions because we're not experts. (laughs) On the one hand, what positive things do you have to say about implants for yourself or for other people throughout the experience of having them? I mean, it is, it sounds so like superficial for me to say this and even, and think this sometimes, but being able to just put on any top and any bra and any bikini top and just put it on and not think twice about it. It does feel, it does feel good. It really does. And again, like it's, it's not something, I don't know if I would feel different if say I had them before and then I had kids and they sort of were, you know, the, the deflated boob that, that happens after you breastfeed children, Um, (laughs) um, but also happens with age and, and hormonal changes. But, you know, I had such a hard time just finding a bra Oh yeah. Because not only did I just not have any breasts at all, but I also had a very athletic frame. So I have lats, like I have a wide back. So finding a bra that would fit me was nearly impossible. Like they just didn't exist. I, I, the most success I found was literally at, it's not even around anymore. It's called the limited two, which is like a clothing brand. And okay. So the two was for their teen version. So I was buying basically like preteen bras. <laughs> I get that. I was flat on the board for the longest yeah. time, just with dance and everything. Mm-hmm. So yes, definitely understand that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So literally it was just, you know, I just wanted to feel good in my clothes. Yeah. And not because I have such an athletic frame, I, I wanted something that made me feel feminine. And I had gotten, not to mention my name is Alex, and it's not short for anything. So, you know, I, I got teased that I had a boy name for most of my life growing up. And then I had this very athletic frame that was generally had bigger biceps than most of the boys. 
So not having boobs just reinforced the fact that I wasn't feminine. So having them for me just gave me that extra feeling of like, yes, I am a woman. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just do a quick segue here to see if you can speak a little bit to Botox, because it's something that's also becoming, we're noticing it's becoming extremely popular here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we had a uh, facial pain expert on the podcast not too long ago, and he spoke to Botox just very, very quickly and how it can damage your facial nerves and have other health impacts. And once you get Botox, you kind of just have to keep going back and back and back. So we were just wondering if you could speak to that at all. Sure. I don't, I don't probably don't know as much as he does, but um, I've done definitely done my research. I will admit that I got for the first time right before my wedding. Um, I had a little bit of pressure actually from some family members, funny enough, who were like, oh, you should just go get this done before the wedding. So your pictures look nice. Um, But of course I did my research and I don't know if if this doctor that you had on previously talked about where, like how Botox started, but it was actually created to A, prevent sweating. (laughs) I'm sorry. Amazing. All right, cool, cool, cool. Keep going, yeah. But it, like it, it, so it basically stops the nerves and the muscles in sweat glands or under the armpit. So it was one of the that yeah, was created. You know, for yeah, let's just jam that right into your brachial plexus. Great idea, oh. right? Exactly. But for people who profusely sweat, or that's an issue for them. But interestingly yeah. enough, what they found is that your body is going to sweat regardless. So if it doesn't come out of your armpits, it's going to come out somewhere else. Yeah, it, it will come out. Um, oh no! But I also. In terms of, they, it can be used but in terms of medical reasons to prevent things like migraines or mm-hmm. um, clenching of the jaw, grinding of the teeth. So they'll put mm-hmm. it around the jawline to prevent that. Again, these are all Band-Aids. It's not like, well, there's obviously an underlying reason why these things are happening. So maybe we should look at those first. <laughs> yeah, and that was where our conversation with uh, Dr. Bruce Freeman went because it was like, those are, those are patch-ups. Right. It's not fixing what the problem is. There's obviously something else going on. So, but then they realized, oh, it can actually make your muscles stop working. So you don't have wrinkles in your face, Mm -hmm. but it is interesting that it can be used in so, in so many different places on the body for a variety of reasons, which are interesting and strange and cool at the same time. But I've also heard that it's possible that this is more likely to happen if someone were to start doing this at a younger age, which in other countries they do which is crazy to think of. Wow. Like as early as teenagers, that they'll do this. But if you're unable to make the expression on your face because you don't have muscular control, mm-hmm. you have a harder time reading the expressions of others. Oh, absolutely. And that, that's one of our main curiosities because I've mentioned it before on our podcast. Stephen Porges uh, wrote the polyvagal, or sorry, not wrote, but developed the polyvagal theory. And so much of that goes to, um, he speaks to fight or flight, to our social engagement system and to immobilization. So, you know, when people will black out because of fear kind of thing and threat perception, then the integration within trauma. And one of the key things is like our ability to express emotion, particularly through the upper half of the face is so crucial to understand and to emote. So to understand other people and to emote at the same time. So we're really curious to see kind of where people who are delivering Botox, like how they sort of address this or or do they even address this? And the people getting it, are they aware that that is one of the trade-offs? 
depending on how much they're getting, right? Like if it's freezing their entire forehead, it's literally blocking off mm-hmm. and um, half your face that otherwise expresses safety and emotion to other human beings. Agreed. I don't think that it's, it's definitely not something that's brought up in conversation. It's not something that going in to get Botox, they're going to mention at all. Mm-hmm. No, they're just going to praise you for how great you're going to look afterwards. <laughs> literally we could do more we should get it here and it is it's very addicting I mean I have some friends and clients who you know have have might have gone too far with it I feel I feel like personally in that it's it becomes obvious yes you look very different and you're I can't tell if you're upset right now or or not what do you think yeah and when I see people who can't fully close their mouths I'm like well now you're a mouth breather, whether you think you are or not, and that's going to cause a whole litany of things that you're not even thinking about. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and I actually had a client, one of the ones who I helped through the breast augmentation, who was preparing for a show. She ended up getting um, some Botox done a few weeks before the show, and she actually, her whole left side of her mouth dropped. <gasps> she had zero control over the left side of her mouth for about four weeks. So it was almost like she looked like she had Bell's palsy. Yep, pretty much. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. Yeah, remember, people, you have nerves in your face <laughs> that are very important to control. <laughs> yep, very important. Oh, yeah, so not something that I would be recommending to anyone anytime soon. I, I'm kind of concerned about the trend. It's a really big trend, and it's huge. I mean, let me just give you an example. I live in, a, in, in like, a residential area, but there's a lot of, like, small businesses around in in a six block radius, there are seven places where you could go get it done. Oh no. I could walk three to five minutes to any of these locations. That's frightening. And the other side of it too, is that the accreditations behind it, some people are uh, medical doctors or nurses, or they're trained um, in medical aesthetics and then others are not. And you're seeing the same sort of thing with, I mean, this is completely different. It's not Botox, not, um, about how you look but stem cells and they're doing surveys seeing how many people because it's a hot trend how many people are uh injecting but don't actually have specialized accreditation to deal with that material well in in the united states every state has different regulations so there are certain states that you have to be a licensed medical professional in other states you could be a registered nurse and be able to do it Um, and in fact a lot of dentists are able to do it as well in california because prevent grinding oh but you know what i've had my own experience with grinding having never done it at all in my life and then and we spoke about this on our other podcast with facial pain and then went into a very intense bout of grinding Mm -hmm. and although I wouldn't have wanted to admit it at the time it was all trauma and stress related like 100 Mm percent and it's taken three years to resolve that issue and you know I, I understand a lot of people are not really willing to put in the time because that sounds overwhelmingly long but I was convinced I was like I'm 30 I think it was 31 at the time like I've never ground my teeth in my life there's a reason this is happening and I'm not about to jump on Botox or like headgear or changing my jaw right now. Like this is happening because of something subconscious and, and uh, within the environment that's bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. We live in a society of band-aid solutions, right? There's a, there's a quick fix for pretty much everything. And I mean, if like, seriously, if you're grinding your teeth at night, like chronically something's up. 
And if, if more people would just kind of mm-hmm. take the approach of let's find the root cause here, then we would, you know, people wouldn't have to be going to get Botox and then worrying about all the negative side effects of that too. So I agree. So thank you so much for touching base on that. Now, we always have a few wrap-up questions that we'd like to ask our guests, Alex. Absolutely. So what is the most impactful book you've read over the past year? That one, I, I saw that question ahead of time and I've like literally been debating about it because I read a lot of books and they're all, they're, I read such a variety that it's hard to compare, but I would say, um, and I, I actually have a podcast of my own coming out regarding this topic, but I've been doing a lot more sort of internal work looking at past issues, seeing how they're sort of manifesting in my day-to-day now. And one of the books is Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. And mm-hmm. it is has just been very, very insightful and eye-opening. So it's it's just sort of, I would say, confirmed a lot of the things that I have suspected that are showing up in my more recent years as mm-hmm. things I, I need to look back on and investigate. Um, we'll link that in. I, I saw a talk done by him as part of a part of a trauma summit. Mm-hmm. He's great. We're already sort of talking about trauma in different ways. Yeah. I think touching on your past trauma and how that shows up in your body, in your actions, in your yes. day. Um, again, it's just going to be super insightful. Yeah. And that, that's just it. Like, it's not scary. It's crazy insightful and it can help. You're like, with oh, all sorts- that's why. I do that. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. You're like, oh, I get I'm, to move on yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, being that you're um, an entrepreneur, you're a mom, you've got a lot going on. What is your non-negotiable self-care tool or habit? Okay. I have two. Yeah. One of them is sleep and Yes. I am like a napper. I need a, I need at least eight hours of sleep at night. And then if I could take like a 20 minute nap a day, that would be ideal. So, and then the second one is movement. We can get behind both of those. Couldn't agree more. If I need to sleep, I will to always choose sleep over moving. Yes. I'm yes. on that team. Freya sometimes will choose movement, but I'm definitely on nap. Team nap. I mean, sometimes like I get periods of bouts of insomnia and stuff. So for me, sometimes it's like, okay, you know what? If I move, then you it can allows my body to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Totally get that. <laughs> and so if you had five minutes with someone, what is the one thing that you could tell them to impart some well-being to their health? I would say try to figure out what their self-care routine needs to be mm-hmm. outside. And I, I like to highlight it doesn't, a self-care practice that does not cost them money. Yes. Because that's the first thing people think of. It's like, oh, I can't afford to do this. I'm like, no, 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 it's free. And that's the thing. (laughs) The best things in life for health are free. Mm -hmm. Getting outside into nature, moving your body, drinking. Well, drinking water isn't necessarily free, but it is plentiful in our (laughs) society right now. So, I mean, most of those things are absolutely free. And if you focus on those basics, it's amazing what you can do to your health. Yep. Yeah, or just time for self. Just time for self, and then you ha- and then you can actually look at what your needs are. But I yes. like giving yourself that time in that space, which I know is hard yeah. for a lot of people, but so necessary. And again, yeah. like you know, sitting down and reading a book, it's it is eye opening. You will see things that you have either been ignoring or you know <laughs> choosing not to look yeah. at for whatever reason. So yeah. So last but not least, where can people find you and what projects are you currently working on that we can link in for the listeners? So I have been in the process of revamping and rebranding my website for many reasons. I feel like we've all sort of gone through our, our various lifetime 
through our fitness yep. um, and health careers. Um, so kind of finding again, like what are our, our overall purposes and what is fulfilling. So I, um, my current website is fitlivingfoodies.com because I love food. Um, like Dan, I think you guys mentioned earlier, I've written a few cookbooks, love food. Um, I want it to taste good. I want it to be a fun experience for anybody who's either trying to take care of themselves, get in shape, whatever that might look like. So Fit Living Foodies is where is the current website, but the new website is called HerBodySolutions.com. And it's basically just sort of encompassing all of the work that I do, highlighting the food side of things. The, all the recipes will still be available on the site from the Fit Living Foodies part, but the new Her Body Solutions will just highlight more tips, tools, education in regards to female health, wellness, performance. And are you active on social media? I am. You can find me at Alex Fit Mama on IG. On Instagram specifically? <laughs> on Instagram specifically. You can find me on, on the other social media channels as well, but I am not as active there. Great. Well, Alex, this was wonderful. It was great to reconnect. I haven't heard your voice in a few years now. I mean, we see each other on social media all over the place, but our paths have diverged a bit. But it was uh, so great to speak with you. I'm so happy that you're finding success both as a mother and uh, merging into this new Her Body solution. So anybody out there, any females out there, Alex is an absolute expert in female health and fitness. Uh, so if you have any questions for her, reach out to her on social media, on her website, uh, check out her work because she knows her stuff. Thanks, guys. I try. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Move Daily Health Podcast. We will catch you next time, folks. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.